with any change process, it's, it is communication, communication, communication. It's about being transparent in the communication, being honest and upfront, because I think as soon as you try to pull the wool over somebody's eyes, then that undermines everything that you've built up. Innovation in health and social care is largely around looking what's working elsewhere. In all of the changes that have happened in recent years, I believe we have fundamentally undervalued and devalued care itself. When I talk about care, I mean the basic humanity of the physical care of somebody. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. Today we have the wonderful man, David, Mr. David Panter on the show. Welcome. Glad to be here. So David, you're the current CEO of the Minda Group, the former CEO of the ECH Group, um, the former CEO of Central Adelaide Local Health Network, plus many, many more CEO roles, prestigious CEO roles here in South Australia and over in the UK. Um, welcome to the show. And, and, and what, can, what do we need to know about your earliest context to understand the person who's sitting in front of us today? Um, I think probably the most important thing is that two elements. One is that um, I come from a very traditional working class family in the UK, from the middle of England. Um, my dad was a lorry driver. Um, I was the first one in my family to have the opportunity to go to university. Um, and so that singled me out within the family. Um, but also I came out as being gay at about 15 um, in the early 1970s in the UK. Yeah. Um, and so that also probably sort of defined my early years. Yeah. Um, but the two together um, in terms of my identity around being gay, but also coming from that working class background and a strong, my dad was a strong trade unionist. Yeah. And so most of my core values, I think I inherited and learned from him. So, so what, what were they? I mean, one of my questions here actually is, you know, describe your parents to me and let's understand a little bit more about them and who they were and how they raised you. Um, yeah, again, it's one of those interesting things that when I came to Australia 20 years ago, um, it took me a long time to understand some of the politics mm -hmm. and particularly around the Australian Labor Party mm -hmm. um, because it just felt very different to my understanding, I mean, I've never been a member of a political party, mm -hmm. um, but certainly my dad was a strong trade unionist yep. and was a shop steward in a trade union and very aligned with Labour uh, and always voted Labour in mm -hmm. the UK. Um, and But in the UK, that Labour tradition, certainly for my dad, came out of more of the sort of um, non-conformist Methodist mm -hmm. Um, approach, yeah. whereas what I discovered here is a, a much stronger affiliation between Labour and Catholicism yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, in Australia. And so there's a, so for me, those non-conformist Methodist values of um, being community-focused, not having a lot of pomp and circumstance, mm -hmm. it's a very plain religion and very plain chapel yep. approach, yep. Um, and none of the mystifying stuff. So basically good values of belief in people um, and belief in, in community and doing right by others, 
doing to others as you would have done to yourself. Mm. Um, when I told my parents that I was gay, uh, so this was, you know, the mid-70s, um, so only a few years after, I mean, homosexuality wasn't legalised in the UK to 1969, so it was only a few years after that. The reaction from my parents was, given their background, given the times, was quite amazing. I mean, my mother said, oh, yes, I know all about that. It's something to do with the genes. <laughs> and my father's response was, well, it must be your side of the family because I'm from good breeding stock. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. <laughs> that was done and dusted. There was no other issues. I wasn't How rejected. How old were you at that point? I was about sort of 16, 15, 16. Yeah. How difficult was that for you, given especially, I mean, in the 70s, and I do know later that Thatcher had, she come out and um, put some laws against that. Was, so tell us about that whole decision yeah. of coming out and, and, and how that was for you at that time. I mean, at the time it was, didn't, I didn't, didn't feel it to be traumatic at all. Um, again, I had, I, I have a strong belief that you, you know, develop a frame of reference or a way of operating and ideally that can transfer from one scenario to another. Mm -hmm. And so I was, as a young child, up until the age of five, I was underweight. Mm -hmm. And then after five, I became very overweight mm -hmm. and was through most of my childhood. So I developed a resilience, if you like, to being called a fatty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so then to be being called a puff yeah. didn't really made much difference and I, and I was a strong personality mm. you know again to give you some context I went to a, a sort of classic um, UK comprehensive school there were 15 uh, just under 1500 kids in the school I was the only one that had identified as being gay mm -hmm. uh, one of my friends Ronnie was the only um, Afro-Caribbean yeah out of all of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so it sort of, it, 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 there was a gang of us that were actually felt a bit like outsiders mm. but took comfort and support from each other. Yeah. Um, and when I look back on it now, I just think it was an amazing experience. And it, there was one point where I did get quite low um, and it did impact on my sort of um, academic activity. Um, and that got noticed by teachers. And um, my, the head teacher at the school, Mr. Rumbelow, um, invited me into the office. Um, he knew that I'd come out as being gay. And he just said, look, David, it does not matter what you, in his words, mm. what you do in bed with somebody, yeah. <laughs> you're a person first. Yeah, and that's all that we're interested in is to make sure that you're the best person you can be. And again, to, to have got that response yeah, what an amazing in that thing. age, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, and just as well, really, because a, a year or so later when I um, was um, going down the path potentially of going into nursing, I was working as a nursing assistant in the local hospital and Mr. Rumbler came off his motorbike <laughs> and spent a few weeks in the ward I was working in. So, so I, I had to rub cream on his bottom <laughs> most days. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, well, at least you, you took care of I mean, because he could have gone down another path, you know, which might have... Absolutely. And, and I, you know, it's, it's, I was so oblivious to everything that was going on mm. and what the upset it might be for other people. And it was only when I went back to a school uni union, probably when I was around about 30, mm. 
And some of the teachers that I was very close to, of course, by then I realized that actually they were only a few years older than me because mm. they were in their first teaching jobs, 22-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they then shared with me at that reunion how agonized they were because yeah. they'd never experienced somebody coming out mm. and they just didn't know what to do. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I was oblivious to all of that, but together – they created an amazing environment along with my sort of home environment. So, so I don't feel that it was a particularly traumatic experience for me. Yeah, fabulous. Did did you? And when we were talking about off off air, we were talking about loneliness, right? And um, we won't go into the subject that we were talking about there. But the did you feel because you were the, you said out of the fifteen hundred students you were the only one that came out and, and said that you're gay? Did you feel a sense of loneliness, not being able to share and connect with anyone else in that way? Or no, because because I, I think that there was a number of us who, for different reasons, felt as outsiders, mm-hmm. and so we had our own gang, if you yeah, like, okay. and it was you know. And I, you know, I think I did develop that sense of robustness in my personality, in my approach, what I was prepared to give ground on, what I wasn't prepared to in terms of my values. Um, and people responded incredibly positive. You know, I can remember going to the you know, school social club on a Thursday evening and you know, literally going up to some of the people who again were friends but I wasn't particularly close to who were the you know the classic high school jocks you know, mm-hmm. the soccer team that yeah. sort of thing yeah. and I, I would say to them you should kiss me <laughs> and they did I mean yeah. it, I mean not in a yeah, yeah, yeah. passionate way yeah, yeah. but they weren't they didn't react no. to it in a, yeah. an adverse way and yeah. so I mean I just and I think that was part of just the presence I had yeah I was in some ways a very typical young gay boy in mm-hmm. that I was into amateur dramatics. Yeah. Um, I was always in the school play. Yeah. Um, Which is very endearing, right? And uh, people yeah. like being around people who are charismatic and, yeah, so that's, yeah. that's great. Do, do you um, – later on, I think it was in the 19 19- – Late 80s? Was it 80s when Margaret Thatcher came out yep. and changed the law? Is that correct? So how did, how did that affect you in any way? Well, I think that, again, from it, from the, my days of coming out in the, in the sort of mid-70s and then was felt had always been very sort of active politically in that sense mm-hmm. around sort of campaigning. Yep. And when I went to university, um, that carried on. When I was at university, that's when things like the minor strike in yep. the UK was happening. Um, there um, is a very good film people might have seen called Pride, mm-hmm. um, which is about how the gay community in London rallied around the miners yep. and collected donations and then actually went to a Welsh village um, to hand over the donated money to support them and the culture clash there. Mm. And and it was an amazing film to watch because that felt very much like my experience yeah, okay. at the time. I was part of the group that was raising funds for the miners. Yep. Um, and so it was very sort of anti-Thatcher. Yeah. Um, and so w- later on when she brought in the, the laws to prevent homosexuality being promoted in schools or by any sort of government body, um, then, yes, it was awful. 
but there was significant action in the community to try and actually deal with that and respond to that in various ways. Mm. And so that sort of political activism, because you, you can't divorce that from the arrival in the early 80s of um, HIV and AIDS yep. and all of the impact that that had on the, the, the gay male community in particular. Yeah. Um, and, and my early career was founded in that world. That, world. Uh, that was my very first job in the health service yeah. was working in HIV and AIDS. Well, because that's what you said. You said you sort of, uh, in a previous conversation, you've said to me that you sort of just ended up in the healthcare. Yep. Um, can you talk us through how all that came about? And obviously had a, uh, you know, a, a substantial input into the early part of the HIV AIDS piece in, in the UK. Yeah. So, I mean, when, as I said earlier on, I, I wasn't doing great academically. Mm-hmm. I was concerned about, therefore, what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had applied to university to do a degree in experimental psychology, didn't think I was going to get the grades, and lined up a backup to go and do nursing. And again, it, it, this was the late 70s, so men in nursing wasn't that common. Mm-hmm. And the matron who interviewed me at the time for that degree program in nursing one of the first in the UK um, insisted that I go and get some practical experience because they were concerned about whether I'd actually want to wash people's hair and do all the manual care so that's how I ended up in the hospital um, the local hospital and had that interaction with my previous head teacher Um, anyway I managed I didn't get the grades for the psychology but Sussex University ran me up and said you interviewed really well we'd still like to offer you the position great thought I'd do that and then I can go and do nursing afterwards. Did my undergraduate degree, did reasonably well. People said you should do a PhD. I said, well, okay, I'll do a PhD and then I'll go and do the nursing. And the PhD, um, it was when, again, Thatcher who was very had very strong views that society didn't exist and community didn't matter. It was all about individuals. And that took it's she that became real for her in terms of abolishing at the time I was applying for a PhD all of the research money for the social sciences oh wow and so virtually no no university in the UK had actually funds for psychology PhDs one of the few organizations that did was the open university and the open university the original in the UK, very different to the one here in Australia. Um, It's all Um, pre-internet. And the Open University is like a, is a real academic institution. It has a campus in in Milton Keynes in the middle of England. And the only difference between that and other universities is that that campus doesn't have lecture theatres because all of the teaching was done through distance teaching, um, through the mail. Yeah. but also as part of the university um, was the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company. Yep. And so we had studios because what the way they taught was by making television programs and radio programs that went out in the middle of the night mm-hmm. when there was nothing else on television. Yeah, well. And the mature students then used to study via that. They had their own money. They gave me a PhD scholarship. And so I went into my PhD there. And that meant that as of you know, more traditional PhD students, you're expected to teach. But at the Open University, that was about making television programs, radio programs, yeah. distance teaching of mature students, running summer schools, those sorts of things. So I got a whole skill set that when I finished my PhD and was then thinking about what next, I was offered 
the opportunity to stay in academia, but there was no research money. Yeah. And particularly as my PhD was in child social relations and gender development, um, was not going to be something that was going to attract funding. Yeah, okay. And so it just so happened that that's when the NHS, and it was one part of the NHS in London, that advertised a position for what was called an AIDS information officer. First job of its kind in the National Health Service in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I managed to get it. Yeah, um, despite the fact that, again, to give you context, this was the era of the uh, new romantic um, music movement, the sort of yeah. early days of Culture Club, Boy yeah. George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the time, my hair was quite long, curly, <laughs> with lots of rags braided into it. <laughs> I used to wear black tights and a tartan miniskirt. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and um, and uh, Dr. Martin boots. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I went to interview like that. They come back with Doc Martin. <laughs> oh, exactly. there, uh, they... <laughs> and this amazing um, woman, uh, Dr. Leela Lessoff, who unfortunately died a few months ago, um, gave me the job. Um, and so that job was about working with gay men and injecting drug users around the streets of London um, on trying to a enable them to prevent becoming infected, but if they did become infected, how to then handle that. Hmm. And that's how I got sucked into the health system because I very quickly then moved on from that role to creating services. And so I was part of the group that created the first inpatient service around HIV and AIDS at St. Mary's Hospital yeah. um, in London. How, so so are, you, are you a doctor then? Doctor. So I'm, I am, yes, so I've got a PhD, so I'm technically Dr. Dr. David, David Panter. Um, I never used the title until I came to Australia. Yeah. And then when I worked for SA, started working for SA Health, everybody insisted I had to use the title, because yeah, okay. whereas in the NHS I never yeah, used it. Because okay. in all the articles nothing ever refers to yeah, yeah. as Dr. David Panter. But yeah, yeah. There's a lot of articles written about you. <laughs> so, you know, so, so I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful that I had the experience of getting the PhD. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't no. use how, the title. How, how, just, I mean, we'll, I've seen, you know, movies, and that's kind of my only context of sort of the 70s and 80s of what happened in that time. How, how rife was the AIDS, HIV um, situation at the moment? Was it in those era? Was uh, it, it was, well, it was just awful. It mm. was, the impact was completely devastating. Um, again, if you want to get a really good sense, because I think it's the best thing I've seen in recent years, there's a, a drama series called It's a Sin mm-hmm. that was is written by Russell T. Davies, who has done, written lots, Queer as Folk, and then yeah. a lot of the Doctor Who yeah. revival is all uh, down to him. Yeah. Um, and it's about a group of young gay men in the 80s arriving at university in London and then AIDS arriving. Yeah, okay. And for me that captured absolutely and there's one young man in that who gets hiv becomes ill and there's some really grueling scenes of him um going into hospital and it's that classic what i would call a florence nightingale ward just the big ward with like 30 beds in 15 down each side he is the only person in there and the door is locked and people will only go in with huge hazmat suits on. Oh, wow. And As that's if it's like airborne. Exactly. And that's where he dies. Huh. Um, and, you know, in the service I'm talking about at St. Mary's, we had three of those wards. So we had 90 beds. 
we we didn't use hazmat suits. We'd gone beyond that. We'd got the education. Mm. We were, and I was part of my job was to educate the staff about how best to interact with people. Um, but we w- would have ninety essentially young gay men um, and a few injecting drug users who were just dying, mm. and the trauma around that. It was often families wouldn't accept the whole situation that they had a son in that position. If they did, they would call it cancer, not AIDS, because cancer was more acceptable. You had partners and and friends completely disowned, not allowed to go to funerals, um, bodies being taken away and buried elsewhere in the country in secret. It was awful. Um, And, you know, it's the... um, and a bit like happened in Australia, there was a big government-run publicity campaign to try and um, enable the community to understand the impact. But it was all done in doom and gloom. And again, the impact of that on the people directly affected mm. was, again, more tra- trauma, more traumatic. Mm. Um, but it also created a huge amount of... Um, energy within certainly within the gay community Mm. and things happened and things got created and i i think today we've got a lot to be incredibly thankful for in terms of the gay community's response to hiv and aids back in the 80s so for example you know at the time Cancer was really never... I mean, it was better to, to die of cancer than AIDS, but cancer wasn't talked about. It was always the big C. Yeah. And the fact that we now talk about people living with cancer, you know, that whole notion of putting the person first yeah. came out of HIV and AIDS because mm. we insisted. We started talking about people living with HIV, mm. not yeah. dying from AIDS. Yeah. And the pressure the community put on the drug sector, the pharmaceutical sector, to open up and be more transparent about the development of drugs and get them out to test sooner. Mm. And that's what we saw in the response to COVID. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, I just, and, and I just don't think those things would have happened if it, it, wasn't if it hadn't been that experience. Well, sometimes you've got to go through the hells to, to yeah. get the learnings, right? The silver lining exactly. was, was able to save many lives thereafter. Yeah, so, you know, and then there were great other, you know, I was very much involved with a thing called the London Lighthouse, which was a, a palliative care centre set up specifically for people with, with HIV and AIDS, um, created by some great people. I was very fortunate and privileged to be on the board of that for a little while. Um, that was something that um, Princess Diana was patron of. Yep. You know, she did amazing. I mean, I'm not a royalist, <laughs> yep. but I have to say I have a special place in my heart for Princess Diana. I was fortunate to meet her a number of times, but her commitment oh, really? to the AIDS activity and yeah. to the gay community just was stunning yeah. and was completely out of step with the rest of the traditional system at the time. And How just, did you go about meeting her? Like oh, just because of like being on the board of Lighthouse. Yeah. She would come into Lighthouse completely um, outside of um, any publicity. Mm. She would just come in of an evening and just sit with somebody. Yeah, great. And sit at their bedside and chat to them. Yeah. So there was no pomp and ceremony. There was nothing. It wasn't no. about her getting publicity. It was just how she thought she should be doing Someone things. Someone who used her. She her just her cared. Images. Yeah, and she actually used it for good, which yep. is great. Uh, tragic story in its own right. Um, so, so tell us about um, then your career and your evolution. I think I remember you saying that um, 
early in your career, you you helped, uh, you worked in a place called Brighton, uh, helping people with disability. And now today you find yourself working in a place called Brighton in Adelaide, yep. uh, helping people with disability. Let, let's talk about your career. And, and, and I do know that you were you know, one of the youngest CEOs at the time in, in the health network within the UK. And I'm really interested to hear your career progression and journey. Yeah, so, I mean, so I was at university at Sussex University, which is on the outskirts of Brighton. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd had that little bit of experience of nursing prior to getting into university because I thought I was going to go and do nursing. So when I was at university, I had to – it was a time when – um, university education was free mm-hmm. and I got a grant and it was I think it was 200 pounds a term mm-hmm. um, for subsistence yep. but it clearly wasn't enough and mm. so um, I had to do some work and so I went to and there was again a, a reluctance to accept men at the time this was 1980 into um, agency nursing or nursing assistance because yep. I wasn't a nurse but I had a bit of experience Good being help, yep. um, and so couldn't get any work from that. And so I thought about the looking at social care and went to um, the social services department of Brighton Council mm-hmm. um, and said, look, I've got these skills. I would really like some part-time work. You use agency. Can we cut that out? And can you just employ me? And they said, oh, we've never done that before. But I said, you could set up a ca- your own casual pool. You don't need yeah. to use agency. And then you cut out some cost. Oh, that's a good idea. And so that's what they did. And they employed me as the first one in that pool. Yeah, very good. And I was working with people with intellectual disability mm-hmm. in a hostel. It was like a respite hospital, hostel for people with intellectual disability. So yeah. for the three years that I was university, I was getting my paid work and supplementary income by working with people with intellectual disability. Um and so that's the then full circle 40-odd years later yeah. being back in a, a place called Brighton with people with intellectual disability. Um, so that was my first real experience of prolonged experience around care. Yeah. I've already described what happened when I did my PhD yeah. and then I ended up in the health system. Yeah. And for me, and I think it goes back to the very beginning what I was saying about my dad and my values, my focus is has always and continues to be the people that myself, the organization, is there to support. I'm not there for me. I'm not sh- there for boards to make money. I'm not there for, you know, for all of that. I'm there for the actual people who need the support. Yeah. And believe Which is why in you've that. always worked for purpose led yeah. businesses. Right? And it's and it and uh, and uh, and I like to have that direct connection. So mm. when I got into that world of HIV and AIDS, that was very much what I brought with me mm. and had that direct connection with people with HIV, people on the streets, doing it tough, and then thinking, well, how do we now create a service that actually is going to best meet their needs? Yep. And um, as I'd got a growing reputation for doing that, because as I said, I, I am a activist in a sense so one of the other things i did as i was the first person appointed into a role like that in the nhs Mm -hmm. but it spread quickly and within a year there was over a hundred of a hundred of us Mm -hmm. and and i then was instrumental in creating a thing called the hiv workers alliance yeah Yeah. (laughs) so we started to get a bit of professionalism and consistency about how we could work together and learn from each other um so i was getting a reputation um, for being able to 
bring things together, design services. And Thatcher comes into play again um, because she brought in reforms into the National Health Service and decided it should be split into two components, the bit that provided the services and the bit that commissioned services. Mm. And so I was asked then to move into that space of being a commissioner of health services. So I went to work for um, a health authority in the middle of London. It was the one responsible for St Mary's. Yep. Um, and But was to set up and again be part of the pilot to set up that commissioning role. And that was, I think, in recognition of my experience around how to take an understanding of what people were looking for and needed and then how do you design a service and you know today a lot of that gets called co-design yep, yep. i think it was just my natural practice sort of 40 years ago to seek to, others perspective that's right and yeah. then look at how you enable nurses doctors other professionals to respond to that and create a service environment that's going to give you both as an organization and as an individual person or patient the best outcome possible um, and so had that experience of, of developing that commissioning role, then um, moved into East London as deputy chief exec of, of the East London Health Service, um, doing that commissioning role, but also then getting into bigger um, enterprises around redesigning the structures. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I did there and was... Um, And again, it's important for people to understand that health in the UK at the time was very different to the public hospital system here in Australia Mm. and the politics around it. Because the NHS is so big, you can't... The Secretary of State for Health at a national government level doesn't get involved in the day-to-day running because they can't. And so if you're running that health service, you are the face of that health service to the local public. Yeah. And all the local stakeholders, including the local MPs. Mm. And so as part of the changes that we put in place in East London was to close the emergency department of um, St. Bart's Hospital in the city of London. Yep. Because which had been there for 800 years. Yeah, wow. And was how well, was that, how well, was that dealt with? well, it was well, well loved by the, the people in the city of London. You can imagine. But the city of London has very little residential population. Yeah. And the borough of Tower Hamlets next door um, is one of the poorest in the in the UK and equally had a, a hospital that was, was built in the 1700s that was falling over. Mm. And we needed to do something different. Mm. And we needed to move the service and rebuild the one in Tower Hamlets. So I led the process of closing down the emergency department. Um, Some of the community response to that was then that a one-size black and white portrait posters of me went up all over the city saying, this man is trying to close your... This bureaucrat is trying to close your hospital. How did you manage that? Ah, well, but it's just... You had to do the public meetings. Yeah. I've stood on platforms and argued as to why we're making this. I've had things thrown at me. Yeah, I was <laughs> did you ever feel threatened? Yeah, yeah. And, but it was. But again, I think it goes back to that. My basic sort of resilience and personality yeah. is: well, I believe this is right. Mm. I've got the evidence that it's the right thing to do, mm. and so we'll push on and then see what happens. And with those things, again, it, we're not. 
they all then end up going through a formal process. If yeah. there is a significant um, degree of concern from the community, it will eventually escalate up to the Secretary of State for a decision, yeah. as that one did, and he agreed with the decision we were making. So I, I guess that's a question around that. If you went out to, the, you, didn't, you know, these days we call it stakeholder engagement yep. or community stakeholder engagement. If you went out to the community and you said this is what we're planning on doing, you probably would have got a lot of no way that in hell that's happening. Yep. Um, and But yet, yet you were adamant based on your research and data that this was the right decision and, and the opportunities that you were putting forward were greater than what yep. was. How did you come to managing that? That's a big change piece right there. How did you come to about managing that in a successful way towards the end where people started getting on board and, and supporting what you were doing? So for me it's about, I mean, with any change process, it's, it is communication, communication, communication. Mm. It's about being transparent in the communication, being honest and upfront because I think as soon as you try to pull the wool over somebody's eyes, then that undermines everything that you've built up. Absolutely. And it's then making sure that those people who in some of those more traditional systems and processes don't have a voice, mm -hmm. how do you enable them to have a voice? Not to speak for them, because again, that is, I think, fraught with difficulty. Um, it's enabling those people to have a voice for themselves. Yeah. And so enabling the people of Tower Hamlets to have a voice, to say, actually, we need this, mm. you know, is then eventually gets momentum to have as a bigger sway than essentially the articulate white middle-class group yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who were trying to defend what had always been in place and didn't want to see any change. So for me, it's it's just that process of having to try and build a sense of belief and enabling those other voices to come through. Yeah. Because I do believe most of us at the end of the day will listen and will put aside our own prejudices given that opportunity. Yeah, correct. So this podcast was brought to you by Synergy IQ. I'll ask you a quick question. Are you tired of the roller coaster ride that change brings? Or well, I reckon we've got to listen up because I think we've got something game-changing for you. It's time to buckle up and embrace the power of Synergy IQ. You see, change can be a real pain if it's not managed right. Turnover, disengagement, and confusion. It's enough to drive any corporate leader crazy. But fear not, my friend, Synergy IQ is here to unravel the complexity and create great change experiences for you and your people. We believe we've cracked the code with our research systems thinking approach. No more guesswork, no more wasted time. We break it down for you, saving you from missed deadlines and budget nightmares. And our promise, timely, cost-effective and top-notch outcomes. But it doesn't stop there, my friends. At Synergy IQ, we're all about the people. You see, your team is the secret ingredient to success. Together, we'll help you build a high-performing organization by introducing our approach that speeds up change and taps into your people's natural ability to think fast and execute successfully. So it's time to say goodbye to chaos, confusion, and all those headaches. It's time to take charge and transform your organization. 
So if you're keen to help your business manage change in a way that no longer keeps you up at night, then check out synergyiq.com.au to learn more and book a chat with one of our transformation experts who can help you make sense of where to start. I guess like in the world of change, which is a space in which you know I play in a lot with the business that I run in Synergy IQ, do the the asking of the question is is where we would say, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out and consult first. And the pushback that you would have got early, how did you make the decision that, no, 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 we're going to do this first before we go out and seek advice or or share it with the community? Because um, great change management is getting people involved early, Mm. taking in their input and then, you know, utilising their perspectives and building a scenario which works for all. Yep. In this case where it's health and it's a different scenario, sometimes you can't do what the people want because we've got to save some lives here as well, especially in the case of emergency departments. Yep. How did you manage that scenario? So, again, I think you've got to have a very good map, if you like, of what the various stakeholders are and the levels of the process you need to go through Mm. so again i don't want to give people a sense that i'm some sort of maverick that just goes off and does this (laughs) you know as somebody who was i was at that stage sort of deputy chief exec of the east london and city health authority i reported to a chief exec and a board that was appointed by the Secretary of State for Health Mm -hmm. and there was a chair to that board and they were the ones who actually needed to make decisions. My job was to feed them with the information to be able to make what hopefully was the right decision. Um, And so in this particular process, they're the ones who have to be convinced, if you like, by the initial business case that closing the ED at St. Bartholomew's and looking to rebuild the Royal London Hospital into our hamlets, yep. combining the resources of the two hospitals was the right the thing right to do. Decision, yeah. And so that's then needing to have that sort of academic evidence base and so um, a needs assessment of what were the, the health dynamics of those populations, what were then the services that they might need. So, so there's a lot of data so behind it. So all that it. work yeah, yeah. behind it. So you knew that what the decision that yeah. you were making was and the that's, right one. And, you know, and that's, that's part of my academic skill set, yeah. I think, is I'm good at handling. I am not a detail person. I'm mm. very clear. I hate detail. I'm very good at big picture. I'm very good at sort of reading data and complex policy documents quite quickly and putting them together in a way which enables other people who are less good at that to grasp quickly what it all means absolutely i think that's my one of my key skill sets that was your key skill set right was being able to collate that data is that something that has really held you in good stead the learnings that you had in that early phase of making that large change no doubt, and we'll hear more of it as we continue through your career journey, you've been kind of the person that's been called in to come in and fix things, right, and Hmm. and help transform. Do you feel like that early learning of the way in which you managed that project held you in good stead for the rest of your career? Absolutely. I mean, and again, I I think I just feel incredibly privileged that I've managed to be in particular places at particular times that have enabled me to learn and grow. Um, And I think also part of, I I would go back to the gay thing Mm -hmm. in that 
because of, and it's very different now, but because of what it was like then, I had very little expectation of the thought of having a family Hmm. and having children. And so in terms of thinking about my career, I think I had great flexibility because I didn't have to think about, oh, I've got to get the next job to get the increase in pay to be able to afford to have the kids to be able to do X, Y, and Z. I could take far more risk Mm. and pick the jobs that I was interested in and do them because I was really interested in them Mm. rather than because I thought I had to. Yeah. And yeah. so you didn't have anyone else to provide for. That's right. And, and and that you know it's when I look at many of my colleagues from the time um and many who've gone on to do some really great things you know somebody who I was very good friends with ended up running the whole of the NHS mm. until a few years ago. Um I just never saw myself as wanting that sort of trajectory. Mm. I just wanted to be able to have interesting jobs. Yeah. That kept me alive and passionate not doing something because I thought it was the next thing I had to do in my career. And so that has given me greater flexibility mm. to try and get myself into that interesting place at that interesting time to be doing something new and yeah. something different because I certainly know in the same way that I know I'm not a detailed operational person, I'm equally not a maintenance person. Mm. The last yeah. thing I really want to do is just see something tick over. Yeah. So you're the second CEO that said that to me <laughs> recently, which is around, you know, my game is to come in and help transform and change. Yep. Um, when it's steady sailing, I, you know, I get a little bit bored. Yep. I want to I go off and uh, help someone else, right, yep. use my skill set. So, so you became... At that point, we're talking the story, you were the acting uh, chief and then you obviously then went on to become a chief executive. What was that learning like? You know, you, you, in our conversation, you said I was one of the youngest chief executives in, at the time. How did you, in amongst all this, learn and develop yourself? Like did you put time and effort into it? Did you say, actually, I want to lead this company, I want to lead this department? Um I want to lead, I mean, you ended up at Brighton um, Local Council as well, which was responsible of, I think, how many, sort of 300,000 people or something like that? That's right, yeah. yeah. 20,000 staff in there in amongst that as well. Was that the trajectory in which you saw your career going? It's actually I'm going to lead and and what do I need to do as a leader and manage my own behaviour and my own knowledge and everything else that goes with it? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and and again, I'm a very good, very bad role model um, in the sense that I, I, I did attend a three-week um, general management training program in 1987 I think it was at the King's Fund Institute and it was a great program but that's the only formal bit of management change training I've ever had everything else has been on the job and and really learning from those that I respect around me and the best way isn't it yeah exactly and I've just got I have I wouldn't have done what I've done without some amazing people and I have to say particularly some amazing women. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Leela Lessoff, who appointed me to that first job, 
in Islington around HIV, um, Dr. Sheila Adam, who then appointed me to this big service job, um, Barbara Young, now Baroness Barbara Young in the House of Lords in the UK, who was my the chief exec of that health authority going down the commissioning role that gave me the opportunity. Yep. You know, and it was the same in going to my first chief exec job, and I think I was 31, um, in Hillingdon in West London. Um, and for those of you who don't know Hillingdon, it's where Heathrow Airport is. So yep. I also took on responsibility for all of the health around Heathrow and immigration and all yeah, that wow. sort of stuff as part of that. Um, and Sandra Edwards, who is the chair who appointed me there, you know, I go through, I went through phases where I thought I needed to conform in order to get the progress. Mm -hmm. And so I did want to be a chief exec. And so I remember going to the interview. I wore a suit and tie, as you'd expect, um, but I took my earrings out. Okay. Yeah, and I've had earrings since I was 15 or 16. Yeah. Um, and after the interview, um, Sandra rang me up and said, interviewed really well, we really love you to come and be our chief exec. And she said, and I think you can put the earrings back. Okay. So she knows. Because <laughs> you know, yeah. she knew, because I had a profile that yeah. I wore earrings. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and it's sort of the... And so it's little learnings like that, mm -hmm. but then being given the opportunity to undertake some of those bigger changes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Hillingdon was great because it was my first chief exec job, but it was in a time of a lot of change. Mm -hmm. And through that, I got to work with the Blair government on the modernization of the NHS when the Blair government first came in towards the end of the 90s yep. um, and set up the country's first one of the first primary care trusts which was the new model in which services were going to be delivered with gps running things yeah you know, so i had over about 350 individual gp gps mm. who are part of the nhs but are also private yeah um, privately run trying to coalesce and bring them together <laughs> to work in this sort of co-design way yeah, and wow. think about it was again just an amazing opportunity yeah, yeah. Were you, was your, when you walk into a role as CEO, do you go in with the knowledge of what needs to be transformed straight away? And then as in, have, do you get that sort of gut feel looking from the outside in or does it take time for you to learn and understand and being able to pivot and shift? I think it's a, it's, it's a mixture because if you... Yeah, with the current um, role at Minda, for example, mm -hmm. you know, it's been very difficult to live within the South Australian environment in recent years without seeing, you know, the headlines in the advertiser about what's happened at Minda over recent years. And so absolutely I went into the interviews for that process with a very clear view, a pitch as to what I thought needed to happen yep. in order to bring Minda good. Mm -hmm. Um and if the, you know, and I was very frank with the, the board that this is what I think, yeah. I need to check this out, but these are certainly, certainly the types of things we need to be doing. If you're up to that, then I'm very happy, you know, to, if you ask me to accept the job. Mm. Um, but if you don't believe that's the right thing, then equally, yeah. I don't feel, you know, I'll, I'll walk away. It's mm. not a... Um, and were you right in the most part for that? Oh, I think. I, well, what, I th what what work are you able to disclose? What those were those things that you said? Well, it, it's in line with what I've I've already indicated elsewhere in my life. It's sort of 
I think Minda had lost its focus mm -hmm. on why it was there and who it was there for. We're, yeah. we're there for people with intellectual disability and to enable them to have the best lives. Yeah. And as an organization, we diversified into a whole range of things which weren't necessarily the core business yeah. and therefore became a distraction. Mm -hmm. And so the last couple of years has been rebuilding back that core purpose. And that starts with actually talking and listening to the people that we're there for, people with intellectual disability, yeah, <laughs> uh, and why they didn't like what Minda was offering them. Mm. And then how do we change what Minda offers so that it's more consistent with what they and their families or support networks are looking for? So it's, um, again, I don't think it's rocket science. No, but it's, it is interesting because... You know, I started my own business, right? This this is the business that I started and co-founded and, and run. And when you first start off, it's kind of, it's yeah, let's grab whatever we can, <laughs> we can, you know, we'll do whatever we have to do to survive, right? And then as you grow older, <laughs> you you start realizing actually, being connected to the core purpose and having that niche is far more valuable to the community in which you serve than trying to do everything for that community. So something that we've learned over time, especially with our own, my own business, it seems to me though that you are um, and throughout your whole career and the word purpose has come up a couple of times that you are connected to purpose. Therefore, it's very easy for you to look in and see, hang on, we're clearly not living to what our values are, to what our purpose is. We've diversified way too much here, hence the reason why we're in a bit of trouble because we're not we're actually now not serving in a way in which we're good at. Um, would you say that's a common thing amongst many businesses? And and further to that, how do you stop thinking about the brand new shiny ball um, and the opportunity for the cash grab with these things and stick to your purpose? Do you know what I mean? So there's a bit of tempt that comes into that as well. Well, but I think that that probably is is a is a key issue in terms of what is an organisation there for, and is um, growth the only factor mm. that you're in pursuit of? Mm. And I and it's why I do have significant concerns, for example, about the way in which we have swallowed hook, line, and sinker that for the not-for-profit or mission-based sector, we're importing a corporate governance model. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that the corporate governance model is necessarily right. Now, I'm not suggesting we don't want good practice, but what I've seen in other not-for-profit organisations is you have a co more corporate-style board that is completely focused on the bottom line. Mm and potentially will reduce the types of services they're doing, particularly in an environment where the government are commissioning or procuring services, they'll focus on where they think they can get the best return. Mm. Whereas in reality, in my mind, for a not-for-profit is a not-for-profit. Yes, we need to make enough profit to cover our costs and to do good, but we're not looking to be you know, mega cash rich yeah. in my view. Um, some will disagree with that. And so I think that's part of the challenge is what is right. You, know, you mentioned earlier on about how I sort of learn or how I've developed. 
And I also, in addition to just learning from the good people around me, there's been occasions when I've decided I need to understand something better and will then try and work out a way of doing that. And when I was in that first job in Hillingdon, um, was really concerned about how much of the health budget was clearly being spent on pharmaceuticals. And so I wanted to understand how the pharmaceutical business worked. Mm -hmm. And we had a big multinational um, pharmaceutical company actually in the area uh, in terms of their headquarters. And I managed to get myself a a six-month sort of part-time secondment to them Mm -hmm. just to be able to get a sense of how their world operated. And So you put yourself in the situation. Absolutely. And what it brought home to me, though, is that that company that made billions literally had about 12, 13 key products. Mm. And that was the entire... And yes, they did lots of research and they had some very fancy um, research setups to try and find new products. But their whole business actually was existed internationally on about 12 or 13 particular drugs. And that... And so I also came away from that experience, not just knowing the um, a bit more about the, the drug world, but or the pharmaceutical world. Um, but it was also very it took it took out of me any notion that I wanted to work in the private sector. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I actually just found it quite boring. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, well, hmm, is this all you're doing? Yeah, correct. <laughs> so, it's been repeat almost. And whereas stick, stick with what you you do and in health and social care, where you know you're dealing with with people with huge diversity of need whole age spectrum it's just it's there's never a day that's necessarily the same but on that in i mean you said you don't believe that non-profit needs to be cash rich there's this perspective that the more cash you have the more good that you can do right in the sense that the more in the when the world the more people with this disability you can help no absolutely i I think that there's i'm not i'm not opposed to fundraising Mm. What I am opposed to is focusing your core purpose um, on yeah. those things which are profitable. Yeah. And that is one of the big issues at the moment with the NDIS, and mm. that's part of why the government are sort of clamping down on the degree of fraud, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Yep. There's a lot so, of that going on. Yeah, so I just think I'm just really mindful of the fact that, say, the corporate governance model um, isn't necessarily – the right model for many not-for-profits and mission-based organizations Mm. because I've seen it happen where that board is following all of its fiduciary responsibilities, Mm. et cetera, but by default they actually miss why they were created in the first place. Correct, yeah, which is ultimately we're here to serve, right? So when you – we've kind of skipped in your career but while we're talking about – I mean the – how bad was it when you walked in? I mean, I think it was um, very challenged financially. Mm. As I said, they'd made a lot of decisions um, which had used up the capital that it did have and yep. reserves that it did have. But it also, more fundamentally, hadn't really got to grips with the world of NDIS mm. and how that was different from being an organisation that just got a single big block contract and was free to do what it felt was right to do. 
because with NDS, and I absolutely support this model, it's for individual, the individual clients, consumers, participants, whatever we want to call them, the people living with the intellectual disability themselves, get the money mm. and then they choose who they want to spend that money with um, and what their expectations are from that. And so it was the, in my view, that it was that dual element of pursuing a strategy to survive that was based on diversification rather than on the core business mm. and then by default neglecting the core business and not really having the dialogue, the engagement with people that we were directly there to support. Yeah. And was that the key reason in which you took on the job and wanted to go? Because you left from ECH to go to, to Minda. Did you – was it actually – this is exciting and I can turn this around and bring it back to purpose. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very open and honest with people. I mean, I, I'd always assumed that the um, role at ECH would be my last full-time chief exec job. Yep. Um, and um, I'd done, you know, sort of just over seven years, we'd done the transformation that ECH had wanted away from residential age care to focus on housing mm -hmm. and on home care mm -hmm. and enabling older people to live at home until death and to have a good and respectful death at home. We'd made a lot of change in that space. We were getting into that maintenance yep. mode. Um, and so, and, and again, I think I do feel quite strongly that the, you need to refresh the leadership at chief exec level. I don't, and you know, ECH was a good example where the founding chief exec had been there for over 30 years. My predecessor had been there for over 20. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. was no way that I was going to be there that long. <laughs> no. And so again, after seven years, it began to felt that it would it was important for them just to have a refresh and to um, think differently. Um, and it just so happened that my thoughts around that coincided with the Minda job coming up. Yep. Um, had a long discussion with Desmond, my partner, about mm, what should we do? What should I do about this? And decided because of my strength of feeling about an organization like Minda should be doing a better job. Mm. And Minda provides support to some of the most um, severely disadvantaged individuals with intellectual disability yep. and with the high, with a high degree of complexity. And if if Minda doesn't exist, what's going to happen to all those people? Because mm -hmm. I don't think there's necessarily other organizations no. with the same depth of experience that could pick that up. So I felt that it was a, an appropriate challenge. Yeah. But as I said earlier, I, I was very clear going into that process, had a long conversation with the, the chair of Minda before applying to make sure that got a sense of whether we'd be on the same page, yep. which we were, put in my application, went through the interview process, really pleased that at Minda that included a second phase where I actually got sort of interviewed by family members. Yep. <laughs> so yep. they could check me out as well. Yeah, um, so it felt a very thorough process. Yeah, great. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I sort of committed um, to potentially five years to Minda to be able to oversee this sort of transformation. And you're three years in? Two years in. Two years in. That's right. You're looking at the new strategy. So your first strategy was to get you out of the 
debt that you were in. That's right. Yeah. So we've, it's very much a recovery strategy. Um, and that was initially a three-year strategy. But at the moment, we're on schedule to con- to you know, achieve most of the objectives of that by the end of this financial year. So two financial years rather than three. So we're now, the board is now working on the strategy that will come into place so for FY25 yeah. um, that then begins to focus on sustainability mm. and growth within that context. So 26 million in debt, is that where it got to at some point? Is that the numbers? And um, so we... We, in terms of 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 line of credit arrangements and yeah. fully being fully utilised with the bank, yes, it was that sort of order. So, how do you we turn were... something like that around? What, what, what did, I mean, obviously, we've we've said you went back to purpose, and I do believe there was an announcement recently uh, with yourselves and the Bedford Group. No, that's right. Yep, no, that's um, that's because we, you know. Uh, have been a provider of supported employment programs and a number of businesses like the electronic recycling service and a variety of other things. And again, the board's come to a view that that's not our core business yep. and it is Bedford's. And so if we can organise, which we hopefully in the middle of doing now, a, a successful transfer of those businesses to Bedford, that will enable them to grow and develop um, nice. and enable us to as part of our refocusing on our core business of supporting people to live independently. Yeah, great. Um, so, so you've been doing that with Myron. He's been on the show. He's, yep. been, he's a great human being, Myron Mann, yes. the CEO of Bedford Group. That's been very good working with Myron. Um, so it's so there's the work being do, going on to look at the core purpose, but a lot of the um, financial issues we've had to grapple with have also been about basic processes. Mm. Um, you know, the NDIS at its core is a good system in that, you know, it's it, you're, you have to make claims for the services you provide for an individual, but they pay within three days. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a lot of the basic systems at Minda just didn't. You know, that's some, yeah. and I think when I arrived we were something like, 12, 13 million in arrears for actually claiming payments that were due to us. And so a lot of the work over the last few years has also been putting in place some of those basic systems um, and, again, getting a streamlining of the systems within the organisations. So to get those invoices to NDIS signed off went through multiple hands in different physical locations. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the first things that I did there was create what we now call the client services unit, yep. which has brought all of those people together into a single team well done. in the same building. Makes sense. Um, and <laughs> they then are also the front face of Minda with all the clients that we have. So yeah. if you're a client or a family member of a client and you've got a problem, that's who you go to. Yeah. And then you hopefully can get a single answer of anything to do with the services being provided to you. Yeah. Whereas his, previously you have to go to half a dozen different places. Mm. But that meant also in the back office it was half a dozen places trying to pull together data to, to be able to submit an invoice. Yeah, okay. So just some very basic Basics. processes. Stuff. You know, Minda was in the paper quite a bit there for a period and it wasn't all good that was written about them, which naturally is going to have an impact on your workforce, right, and the engagement of your workforce and the ability to retain and um, attract 
new people to, to working for you. How did you manage that situation? And, and culturally, how did you manage that um, in trying to shift and turn the boat around? So, again, I think it's in my starting point is that in any organisation I've worked in, you know, 90, 95% of the people who work there want to work there, have the right intent and want to be able to do the right thing. Mm. And if they're not able to do the right thing, it's more than likely because we as an organisation have put a barrier in their way to doing that. Okay. And so we've got to own up to that and we've got to have that engagement with staff and listen to their perspective. And, you know, I... I in some ways, again, it's sort of the using your own experience. Mm. So um, this is a ECH example where we did a lot of work in the technology space. And I am somebody who, you know, despite my interest in innovation, at a personal level, don't engage with a lot of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I've got a phone yeah. and a computer. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm not somebody who is particularly avid follower of all of that Um, and at ECH we brought in as part of streamlining um, a methodology an app for dealing with corporate credit cards yep Um, and it and I use that now as a story to staff to say look change affects all of us and sometimes we've actually just got to get on with it Mm. And so I was the one who was the most recalcitrant of using the app because in my old world, I just brought in my credit card receipt, you know, the invoices and receipts and just handed them all to the wonderful Margaret who was my EA and she just dealt with it. With the app, I had to take photos, I had to do stuff at the time, which was just a pain. It took up more of my time. Why did I I want to do that? (laughs) But... I then realized, well, actually, no, I have to do this. Mm. And if I don't do it, why is the rest of the organization going to do it? Yeah, correct. Um, And so I think that for me, the engagement of staff is about creating uh, an ability to engage with them in a meaningful way. And so, again, for me, that is at a personal level. So I spend a lot of time out and about in services. Yep being visible i don't have any pomp and ceremony um one of the first things i did in creating the new exec team at minda is put us all in an open plan office Mm -hmm. um, because i believe it enhances our ability to work together but it's also a visible sign to the rest of the organization about how we work together and that we're no different to anybody else Mm because our other back office staff work in open offices so why should the exec be any different um and also giving a guarantee to staff uh, and i do do things like roadshows to when we launched the recovery strategy went on a roadshow to talk to all staff in all our locations about what that was about and what it meant for them and giving people a guarantee that if they email me i will respond within 24 hours yeah right. and it may be that yeah i need more time but I'll come back and say that I need more time to think about that because I want them to come back to me with their concerns, also what they've spotted as a barrier, what they've spotted as an opportunity to improve what we do to support somebody with intellectual disability. They've got far more ideas. Again, I constantly say, absolutely, I I have 100 ideas every day. 
But thankfully, I've got enough sense to have a team around me who say to 99 and a half of those, yeah, David, you think it's a good idea. It's actually a pile of crap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forget it. Right. Yeah. I'm reminded of the same thing it's, every day. Well, just on that, so that brings up the role of a, of a CEO. I mean, what, what have you learned about your role, about the role of a CEO over the years and, and the, I mean, just the role of leadership in general? Um, obviously, you know, you came, you got, you came to, when did you come to Australia? In 20 years ago, tw- 2004. 20, 2004. So 2004, you came here and you, you walked into roles um, in CEO roles of Central Northern um, Health Network, local health network, then Central Adelaide um, Health Network, um, and then in TCH and all being CEO roles and obviously the uh, Carlin role, the Central Adelaide Health Network, you were um, responsible of managing the big new Royal Adelaide, the $1.83 billion project there. So that was a huge piece of work. What have you, looking back at your career and I think you've said to me previously that Minder is your last CEO <laughs> role and uh, the same as you said with ECH. <laughs> looking back at your career, what, what have you learned from your leadership journey, more th- that sticks in your mind more than anything else. Um, I think it is. I'm trying not to use the trendy words, but I think it's for me. It's about being real. Mm. So I'm trying to avoid the word authentic because yeah. it's overplayed. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's about being real and not. Um, putting yourself into the other category because of how you perceive your status and, well, I'm the chief exec. This would, yeah. I, I, I'm just so fundamentally opposed to that perspective mm. because I think that, and I will often in organisations, I've done this throughout my career, is I present organisational structure diagrams upside down to the traditional way Mm. so i i will put the chief exec at the bottom Mm. because my job is to support the rest of the organization yeah i like that and yes it's yeah and again the thing i share a lot with people that i've mentored it's i don't believe that we even should be necessarily talking about leadership it's followership. Yeah. You can't be a leader unless people are willing to follow. Mm. And people, in my experience, won't follow if they don't have confidence. And therefore, a lot of the anxiety in my role is because, um, again, I think if a chief exec gets too cocky, if they think they know it, <laughs> then the distance between them and those following is getting too big yeah and so you need to be enough ahead in order to give people confidence that you know where we're going yeah, yeah <laughs> without actually knowing where we're yeah. going i mean and that was going to be that sort of like, that was the anxiety for me that's always the, the the area for me and if if i feel too comfortable then that's it's not in the right space i i and that was going to be my question because when you say real you know slash authentic um if I look at myself, my real authentic self is I don't actually know. Like I'm figuring this out as we go along. How much can you how much can you say that to people? 
right? Especially if, if you're looking for followership. If you're not clear and concise and you're figuring this out as you go along, which I think most people are. I've spoken to a lot of CEOs and many of them are like, you know, you make your mistakes and you're yep. going to continue to make mistakes. Um, how do you, How do you sort of mold that together in what's real but what is actually needed for quality leadership direction whatever you call that i think it is the so yeah i for me it goes back to what i was saying earlier on that it's the it's 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 having that sense of being slightly ahead Mm. But for that to work, you've got to have those good communication and feedback processes and engagement with staff. Yeah. Because they feed off each other in a way. Mm. Um, so, and I'm, and I think it's probably a bit got more so as I've got older, to be frank. Um, the My work persona and my personal life persona are very different mm. uh, and i am one of those but i would now very happily describe myself as you know at, at, at work i'm an extrovert mm-hmm. i've got no problem in standing up in, in front of thousands of people or half a dozen people yeah. and leading a process or whatever yeah. um, but it's something i hate doing in my private life mm. um, and you know even to the point when it was my um, 60th birthday a couple of years ago and was persuaded to have the the party which didn't really want to have um, and knew I was going to have to do some sort of speech yeah <laughs> my only way of handling that was to do a PowerPoint presentation yeah. <laughs> which was all photographs but yeah. it was and it was really just saying look I've got a wonderful hundred people here in the room with me but the reality is none of you have known me for more than a third of my life yeah and had this event been back in the UK, there would have been a lot of other people there as well. Mm. And so I want to share with you all those other people yeah, that would have nice. been here. And that also then enabled me to pay my respect to some of those people I mentioned earlier yeah. on because they were in some of the photographs and yeah. still friends, you know, who were just so great to me in past lives. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I'm very aware that I have a work persona, mm-hmm. which is extrovert, but is also that it again i've said it several times not standing on ceremony i am not driven by status i think i probably made the decision 10 15 probably 10 or 12 years ago um that part of me being real was dressing as as i would dress yeah now i said earlier on about the earrings that's Mm. they've always been there but, you know, I would often wear a suit to work. Mm. I don't have a suit in my wardrobe now because no. <laughs> I just – it's not something I feel comfortable no. in. Um, no. and, you look great the way you are. Well, but it's just, <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's how I want, you know, our staff to feel. That, yeah. That they don't have to wear a particular form of dress that's irrelevant. Yeah. yeah. I'm more interested in how they're actually doing the job and what sort of person they are. Yeah. And I think just while we're on the subject of leadership and, you know, and, and being – a CE, I guess, in this in this instance, you're walking into a, a role two years ago and all the other roles there before, which is so important for the people, especially particularly here in South Australia. And I'm not discounting anything you did back in the UK. I'm just talking about South Australia now. 
It's so important. Like the Minda Corporation right now is so important for South Australia. The New Royal Adelaide Hospital was so important for South Australia. The aged care world, you know, we're all getting old, right? And we're all going to end up in that world at some point. It's so important. When you walk in and especially in the case of Minda of where it was to where you're trying to take it, do you ever doubt yourself? Do you ever... Do you ever, is there any sort of fear? In, you, saw, you mentioned you said the word anxiety before. Do you ever think, shit, if I stuff this up, like I'm, gonna, I'm actually probably going to do, I have potentially could do more detrimental. No, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, that's that issue about also being very aware of the mistakes of the past that you've made and a learning from that that also potentially gives some perspective so again it's i've if i take the example of when i spent a number of years as the chief exec of brighton hove city council Mm -hmm. so a bizarre role in a way because it's local government in the uk is very different to um, here in Australia because it's more like state government. Yeah. We run everything. And it was a population of 300,000. Very few people end up in those jobs who haven't grown up in local government. Yeah. I had a reputation uh, commented on the in the national professional press in the UK of being, I got lab- labelled a boundroid, <laughs> that I always worked on the edge of systems. So yeah. in health I was interested in that interface between pro- GPs yeah. and hospitals and then I got interested in the way in which health and social care work together. Yeah. And so for me moving to local government, particularly Brighton given my historic affiliation with that place, being at university there, it was just a great opportunity. Yeah. Um, But some awful things happened there um, which were genuinely tragic, which I had to take responsibility for but were outside of my control. Mm. Well, yes, so we we ran child protection services. Mm. We had the awful death of a baby that should never have happened. Mm. Now that happened, you know, X number of layers away from me, but I'm the chief exec. Yeah. So I have to take responsibility. Yeah. I have to apologise. I have to appear in court. You know, going back to the health days when they introduced care in the community. Um, and so that meant closing down the institutions, um, which I also got the pleasure of doing here with Glenside yeah. when I arrived. Um, but I closed down something similar to Glenside you know, in the early 90s when I was in East London. Um, and... One of the ramifications of caring the community is that some people with mental health issues did unfortunately do some tragic things. Mm. Um, and there was one particular one where somebody pushed somebody under a tube train. Yeah, well. And again, that ended up as a coronial and then an inquiry. I had to front the health services as to what we had done to enable that person with mental health issues to be in that place at that time to do... Those are far more, to me, important consequences mm. of what I have or haven't done mm. that I've had to get to grips with emotionally. Um, and so when there are the sort of tough times, I reflect back on those, mm. not necessarily 
organizational type issues because yeah. by constant the consequence of those is in many cases you know not that great necessarily yeah, yeah. it's the consequence um, on the individual and so that bringing it back to now and minder that's why our entire focus is is now around okay having got back to that core business how do we really make sure that our staff on the ground day in day out are actually doing what they need to do to enable somebody with intellectual disability to have their best life Mm. Um, and how do we make sure that they've got the appropriate training they've got the experience they're being supported to do those things because those are the things that are actually going to make a real difference yeah yeah in terms of outcomes for those individuals and their families yeah thank you for sharing that the the another conversation which i think it just ties into what you said then about especially supporting those with disabilities for a better life um and you you said this to me on on the phone the other day which was around the aged care space but kind of ties into the disability sector as well which was um there's this sense of guilt when you send your relatives to aged care um, and then the same might be it might be the same from a disability point of view as well. Mm. Hey, can you elaborate on your thoughts? Because I know this is a really passion point for you. Yeah. So it's and again, it probably reflects again my sort of psychology background and how I view the world. So I certainly think that one of the issues that doesn't get addressed in policy sufficiently um, is the role of guilt in decision making around services particularly aged care and now um, disability because and I think what I observed in aged care was that it's the children wanting to get the best possible for their mum or their dad and wanting to and acknowledging that they their lives are such because they've got may have kids of their own they've got working lives so their ability to give their mum or their dad that best life is hampered and so but they want to make sure it happens and so they then have expectations of the service that's doing that for you know yeah instead of them and that They'll also then potentially, and we saw this time and time again, think the best solution is therefore residential aged care, mm-hmm. when in fact that older person could actually stay living at their home much longer. Mm. But there's that anxiety about, oh, they're not safe, and if I'm not there and they were they fell over or yeah. something happened, that would be awful, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in reality, accidents happen. Mm. <laughs> People do fall over, and we all die of something in the end. And, and in my experience at Minder, it's the reverse of that. It's the issues around parents or if parents have died and the mantle has been passed to siblings of the person with intellectual disability, they want that person to have that best life mm-hmm. uh, and they want to make sure they're safe. And in doing that, though, it may actually limit the risks that that person's allowed to take mm. And therefore, they don't necessarily get the best life mm. um, experiences and experiences. And, and so how do we then work with, with people with that guilt to enable them to reflect on that, to think differently so that 
the individual concerned, the, the person with intellectual can actually take some risks. They can yeah. go out. They can do things. They actually might. And we've had some wonderful examples where, you know, thinking of somebody who has lived in a, a, a more a larger group setting which was too institutional at Minda mm. um, where pre-prepared meals were being brought in, et cetera, et cetera, every day. Um, and we made the decision for a number of those four individuals to move out of that setting into a house in the community. Yeah. Um, and a lot of anxiety from family and from staff about, oh, they won't be able to cope, they can't do... Yeah. But actually, it's been amazing. Mm. And those people, you know, their staff now work with those people to go to the shops to get the food to then help them prepare the meals so they're not pre-prepared being brought in. And as a consequence, one of those people has now started feeding themselves. When we were told they've never fed themselves, they've had to be fed, they're now feeding themselves. Now, that's, okay, a small gain, Mm. but it's really important for that person that suddenly they feel able to feed themselves. Yeah, and not relying on... Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so it's sort of it's it's that sort of micro it's a, well, stuff. It's the, <laughs> this is a, a child parent thing. Same sort of thing. You know, you got to let your child fall over and scrape their knee to know not to do it again, yep. right? And they have to. That's how they learn. It's yeah. this is the same sort of sort of scenario. Um, I am conscious of your time. We are um, we've flown through. It's <laughs> been talking for an hour and a half or now, but I guess. One thing that I do want to really talk on um, before we jump into some quick fire questions is what do you think are the challenges from the healthcare sector, aged care sector, disability sector? What are you concerned about more so um, than anything else looking, looking forward 10, 20 years time? I think probably consistent with some of what I've articulated already, the I have a view that we need to develop those systems so that people are seen holistically. Mm. We've been great as a society, both here and in the UK, of carving people up so you have a health issue, you've got a disability, you're aged mm. or whatever we don't look holistically at what that person actually needs. Mm. And some of the most innovative um, developments happening within health and social care elsewhere in the world, and indeed in particular in some of the Scandinavian countries, is where they've made that step to look holistically at what somebody needs and then design the system and the services around them. Mm. We have, you know, there's always going to be an issue about whether there's enough tax dollars to pay for all the services, and we're seeing that in NDIS at the moment. Um, That's always going to be an issue. No matter what the taxation rates are, there's potentially never going to be enough to meet all the needs. Um, But I'm absolutely convinced we waste so much of the tax dollar because we have these discrete systems Mm. that you've got to jump across and therefore we miss people and they deteriorate Mm. because of those gaps in the system. Um, And some of those learnings from elsewhere, and it's it's one of the things I've been quite critical critical of publicly um, in the professional world within Australia is that I found in my 20 years in Australia, Australia is very bad at looking beyond its 
borders mm. at what's happening elsewhere and what can we it's bring very in. And for me, innovation in health and social care is largely around looking at what's working elsewhere mm. and doing it here. It's not thinking completely blue sky and doing something completely yeah. radical. It's just taking something that works somewhere else. Can we make it work here if it's going to be better for people? Absolutely. So so that for me is is what, you know, it's the how you bring those different worlds together. What does that look like? What what is looking holistic at those three those three worlds in particular? Well, so what would happen is um, you might let's make it very real. We might say let's look at the population of Mount Gambia. Mm-hmm. Look at what their needs are. That needs assessment work, getting a sense of what does that population profile look like, yep. etc. And okay, and then in aged care, health, and disability, let's just work on those three. Take all the public money that's spent in those three domains on that population of 30,000 people. Mm-hmm and put it all in one pot Hmm. and give one body the responsibility to say, okay, you've got that pot of money, now actually spend that on services for that community that's focused on getting better outcomes. Okay. And take away all of the artificial boundaries because, you know, if you're in vet care, you get something different if you're in aged care. Health hospitals will do one thing care will do something else mm-hmm. there is so i think that you know i would argue that's the main reason why we've got the ramping problems we have in this state at the moment and across australia is because we've got a complete disconnect between the way in which primary care and gps are funded and work mm-hmm. and how the hospital system works yeah so, so and there's just a growing gap between the two so explain that <laughs> to the to the layman person well because with within the gp world the funding system through Medicare is essentially an item of service payment system. The more widgets you do, the more you get paid. Whereas what I was involved in developing in the UK was shifting away from that from GPs to it being outcome focused. Mm. And so you actually got rewarded for if you had X number of people you were responsible for as a GP who had diabetes... If at the end of the year you could see that their diabetes had improved, you got an extra payment. Yeah, wow. So you're incentivized on outcomes, not on inputs. And so our GP system works on inputs. It's item of service payments. The more widgets you do, the more you get paid. Regardless... Of they, whether they have any benefit for you. <laughs> Not to mention, can you even get into a GP these exactly. days? You gotta, like, if you're sick, you've got to know you're going to be sick a week in advance before exactly. you. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Exactly. Whereas if, if the GPs were funded on the basis of having a registered population yeah. and your basic pay was making sure you were accessible to those people when, they were need, when you were needed, when, yeah. and then you add the outcome component, yeah. you end up with a very different system. Yeah. But if the funder isn't responsible for that bit and for paying the hospital bill, then why would you take that into account? Mm. Whereas that notion of putting all the pot in, all the money yeah, in one pot, thing, yeah. then if I don't, and I remember going to Canada with Minister Hill um, to look at some of the innovation over there back when we were developing the concept of the new Royal Adelaide Hospital. Um, and you know, and I think Minister Hill himself admitted he was stunned that his counterpart in Ontario um, was able to say, "Well, actually, if I don't, if I think I'm going to get better value by having more aged care services in the community, than putting the money into geriatrician beds in the hospital, 
I'll just do that. Mm. And they had the legitimacy and the power and the remit to, to do, do that. that. Yeah. And so it's that sort of notion of putting everything in the pot, money into one pot and then mm. having one body because then they can look holistically across the services as yeah. well as the individuals to make sure you're getting better outcomes and better value for money. So do you think the UK system is better than here? I mean, that's a tough. That's it's probably more than it's, sort of than that question. But I, I guess in in the sense that they have this power and authority to make decisions. No, I mean because I think so. Unfortunately, what's happened in the UK? Because don't forget, I haven't been there for twenty years. Yeah, because yeah, I often hear it's like we're lucky in Australia, right? We're lucky. In the- <laughs> There's, I mean, I, I certainly because of the. Um, numerous years of austerity measures that have been put in place in the UK since the um, financial issues back in 2008. Then there are huge issues in the National Health Service. It's not the same National Health Service that I Uh, worked in at all. Um, You've got some similar issues around um, the way in which GPs are operating. The biggest crisis at the moment in the UK is on dental Mm -hmm. because there's virtually no NHS dental service because it's, it's just not paid well enough Mm. and so people have opted into private and so you've got huge issues so no i think that the uk is not where i'd be looking for for good practice currently Uh, so i think there are really good practice in some of the scandinavian countries some of the canadian jurisdictions yeah there's some stuff happening in new zealand as well so i think there there are a variety of things around that we could be drawing on to look at um, those that that different way of doing things to get better outcomes. Is that something that you would look like to do post career, or do you think after Minda that's uh, let's hang up the boots and go and travel the world? And um, no, I'm not. I mean, I, I, again, part of <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have. Um, I'm not obsessed by work, yeah. <laughs> but I'm equally not somebody who has huge pastimes so i have no yearning to sail around the world or to do x y and z in a retirement phase i equally have no desire to be on given what i said about corporate boards Mm. i have no desire to be (laughs) have a portfolio of non-executive positions um but certainly yes i'm i'm keen to put something back um as i move out of operational type chief executive roles into the policy space Mm -hmm. and so around those different models um but also My other real passion is that in all of the changes that have happened in recent years, I believe we have fundamentally undervalued and devalued care itself. And when I talk about care, I mean the basic humanity of the physical care of somebody. Mm. And across our systems now, that task is relegated to the lowest paid Mm. in our systems. Yeah. You know, a lot of nurses now don't do hands-on care. Yeah. Many of them do. But in order to progress in their careers, they have to move away from hands-on care yeah. into managerial or administrative roles. Yeah, it's not the same as it used to be, right? Within aged care, within yeah. disability, you're talking about people being on, you know, $26 an hour yeah. with dealing with huge degree of complexity. Yeah. Um, so... I want to do some work to look at how you value care in in an economic way. And when we were developing the concept for the new Royal Adelaide Hospital, part of the reason why there are the single rooms and all of those single rooms have a big picture window out to the parklands 
or if they're inward facing to green courtyards is because there is a whole load of evidence that says even having a picture of a tree hanging in your hospital room helps you get better quicker. Mm. There's an economic reason yeah, for that absolutely. green vista being there. Yeah. It will have an impact on your length of stay. It's an anthropological thing there, isn't it? And so I believe we need to do the same around the actual care process. It's that connection piece. Yeah. And it does I, feel a bit lonely when exactly. you're in hospital. And I think that if that we need to put a real value on our frontline care staff having a relationship with the person they're providing the care for. And if we genuinely valued that, then we could demonstrate that it had a sort of economic impact mm. in an assessment of how you run a service and the cost effectiveness of service. Yep. So that's – and I'm – you know talking to colleagues at Flinders University in the nursing and health sciences space who've got a common interest around this. So I'm hoping over the next few years to do some work around that. Yeah, because you're studying at the moment again, aren't you? Is it? Well, no, I'm not. Well, I'm in the process of 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 having of being given an adjunct professorship right, at Flinders correct. University yeah. Yeah. with that with the health sciences and nursing school um, because that's the area I say that I want to focus on. Yeah. And I, I want to be able to have um, that relationship with an academic institution. Uh, and I think my observations is that Flinders is doing that sort of work at the moment and has got that passion around that. Yeah. So I'm keen to be part of that. Just going back to your point on the nurses, and I'm just thinking about the world that I live in, which is, you know, helping large organisations or any or, and non-for-profits or whatnot, helping them through change. Um, one thing that we get commented on is that, you know, a lot on is that our people, our, our change managers, our, our team are always on site, whether it's out at, you know, in the, in the mine site or, you know, or, or within the office building, um, we're on site and our role of managing the, the human element of change is always about connection. Mm. It's about constant connection, communication and, um, and being in there and um, it's definitely not something that you can just do. You know, you said communication, communication, communication earlier. It's not something you can just send an email out and then, oh, there's my way of communicating. It's actually how do I meet Joe, Sarah and Tim and, 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 and understand who they are and what they're smelling, touching, feeling and understand their perspectives so we're able to yep. um, enact on this change. And I think it's very similar to what you're saying in regards to nursing is if you can get to know someone, um, and you can get them to feel like they belong uh, as part of the, the, the community or the, or the hospital system or they feel like they're cared for, then naturally that's going to lift spirits. Mm. It's going to make them feel connected. Um, so no, I think there is definitely something in that. Absolutely. And it's sort of, you know, it's one of the frustrations currently that hopefully might change with the NDIS funding, for example, is that it doesn't fund handover time. Mm. So it won't fund for two staff to be there at the same time yeah. to have a conversation about what's happened. That's unbelievable. It doesn't fund supervision time. <laughs> so these are costs that you're meant to absorb as mm. an organisation but which actually detract from the quality of the care and support you're providing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that that reminds me is that, again, it, we we're doing it at ECH, we're about to start doing it at Minda, is that I require any of our staff who aren't client-facing, so the, classically the back office, yep. the finance, the HR, etc., yep. that they have to um, spend a number of times a year shadowing a frontline member of staff mm. because I want everybody to be connected to that core purpose. Absolutely. And, you know, it's very easy if you're 
a finance person you know, to be sitting Correct. in your you office lose sight of what, you lose sight yeah. of what's what you're there for. So that building that in, and it's a bit more challenging within a Minder environment simply because we've also got to be really mindful that these are people's homes. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> They're not workplaces. Yeah, correct. And so we have to negotiate differently how you yeah. might have somebody shadowing. And that's what we've been working through with people with intellectual disabilities themselves yeah. about what they would like. So that's uh, why it's taken a little bit longer to think about how we implement it's that. It's much needed and like you said, majority of people at Minder are connected to the cause as to why they're there and, and ECH and, and all the above. Um, so actually being able to see it is only going to and being part of it is only going to connect them even mm. more which brings up your employee experience and then your customer experience on top of all that. Yep. Right, we're uh, we're we're going to sort of start diving into some uh, some closing thoughts. I think if if you had some uh, before I go into the quick fire questions, uh-huh. um, I want to just ask if you had to um, encapsulate your entire journey in a single lesson or a message. How would you how would you do that? What would that look like? Um. <laughs> The one thing that constantly goes around in my head, which is sort of answering that question, <laughs> uh, and goes back to the issue of earrings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was when I was chief exec of Bryson & Hove. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a flurry from some of the local government, as I say, is different, it's very political. I had four political parties yep. in the council, 78 elected members. So a challenge just managing all of that yep. dynamic as the chief exec. And at one point, the opposition made some comments about my earrings and indicated, which led to a flurry of letters in the press about how can this person be doing the job with earrings? They'll have a yeah, bone well, through their nose before you know it or what, just bizarre stuff. Yeah, yeah. And this wonderful woman, Doreen, and I've still got the cutting at home, wrote a little letter in saying, I've been around for 89 years and over that time, I've actually worked out it's what happens between the ears rather than what's in the ears that matters. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and that to me encapsulates, I think, that message. It's about be who you are yeah. and be focused on why you're there mm-hmm. and that should hold you in good stead. Absolutely. I love that. If you were to give, um, I mean, you're, you're, you've quite openly said that you're coming towards the uh, the latter part of your career and... Um, especially within sort of leadership and leading businesses, if you were to give any advice to some emerging leaders out there, um, what would that be? So it's two things. I think it's 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 making sure that you're doing a job that you actually want to do and have some passion about. Mm-hmm. And secondly, about always thinking about the job after next. Yeah. Okay. Because... To get the next job, you need to be performing really well in the existing job. Mm. And so if in going into that job, because often people might talk to me about, oh, this job's come up, should I apply? What do you think? And it's that sort of notion that, well, hang on, make sure that you're in a, in a job that you're going to be performing well in and mm. you're not doing it just because it's a thing to tick on the list that you think you should have done this job yeah. to get the next one yeah. because you won't get the next one if you're not Unless performing you well. This well. So thinking a bit more about that. I love it. Um, and last, before we jump into the quick fire, what excites you about the future of healthcare? 
Um, I'm not sure a lot does, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I think for me, I, th I do think that because of a whole range of factors, we are going to see a resurgence of that sort of community voice, mm. that user voice that is going to help shape where we go because the current arrangements can't continue. No. That fragmentation is just getting too many perverse outcomes mm. um, and is going to inevitably, I think, lead to a cycle where we're back in that mode of having to think more clearly about what we're trying to do. And I do think that's potentially exciting. Yeah. Um, and some of that may involve technology and other things, mm. but, you know, as clever as AI might get and as helpful it might be, I don't particularly believe that's going to replace that issue of the actual touch. Mm. There's a lot, of, a lot of process stuff it can deal with. Yeah. But the human connection element, I think, still relies upon humans. Absolutely. It's Maslow's hierarchy, isn't it? <laughs> right. Quick fire. Oh dear. <laughs> what are you reading right now? Um, I have just finished a I'm, – I'm a crime reader. Oh, yeah. But I'm don't, and I don't like – um, I think it now gets described as cosy crime because okay. I don't so, – so people like Vera, so yeah. Anne Cleves books, yeah, yeah. which is uh, – I mean, Vera's wonderful as a television program, but the books are even better. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it's, it's crime books which are set in a location as well because I like that sense of place. Yeah, yeah. So there's some – I've just finished the Chris um, – Hammer ones set in Australia, yeah. which yeah. have been really good. Yeah, great. So yeah, so so they and I and I am an avid reader. I I um, read every night before I go to bed. I read I when I'm traveling time. a lot, yeah. and um, I go through probably at least a book a week. If yeah, wow. So smashing them out. Yeah. Do you read much self development books and or or leadership books or business books? And if you do, was is there any that sort of st stood out for you over the years? Um. <clears throat> Simple answer is no. Mm, no. <laughs> I I don't. I occasionally read a um, an industry related book. Yeah. So there's there's a book that came out a couple of a year or so ago called The Careless State, for yep. example, which is an academics book. Is yep. and it's about that whole issue about how in shifting to that corporate governance model to procurement models, yep. um, we have taken care out of our system. Mm -hmm. Whether you're looking at childcare through to hospitals, etc. Yep. So yep. so, but no, I, I'd. It's part of again keeping that separation of work and and, yeah. and personal. Yeah. Is I don't tend to, and. I, and yeah, probably a bit cocky because of my psychology background that most of the... The stuff is hogwash of, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? Um, I think it is that issue about just being myself. Mm, as being, I, I've always real. thought I'd be mm. being myself. But I know I then drift away and then I, there's something happens that brings me back to that. Mm. So it's... So it's, and I say, you know, I can see that in my career in terms of, you know, taking my earrings to go, out, go to a job and then yeah. being told I don't need. It's, so it's that and also a learning early on, which I hope I haven't, I think I stopped replicating fairly early on, is that classic thing about the team around you. Mm. Yeah, part of the huge benefit I've had with Minda is because of that history and most of the senior team going, yep. I had to rebuild an entire new senior team. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I'm very clear that I need a team around me that complements rather than being like me. Yeah. So I'm not operational detail. I need very good operational detail people. Yeah. Um, and incredibly privileged that a number of my team now are have worked with me in different roles in the past over the last yep. 20 years and yep. have chosen to come and work again with me as part of what we're trying to do at Minda. Beautiful. But that basic thing about don't appoint people because they're like you. Yeah. Because that's probably the last thing you actually need. Yeah, absolutely. If you could have coffee with one current or historical figure, who would it be? Ooh. <laughs> um, probably not Margaret Thatcher. No, it wouldn't be Margaret Thatcher. Um, oh, such a scar on my life, I have to say. Um, I, I think that I would like to – I think there's two different people, I guess. Um, one is um, Quentin Crisp. Mm -hmm. So Quentin Crisp was a, was a famous homosexual okay. <laughs> um, who struggled through – all of the illegalities, et cetera, in the 40s and the 50s okay. uh, in the UK yeah. came to prominence because he wrote a book um, in the late 70s, I think it was, called The Naked Civil Servant that got yeah. turned into a TV drama. Yeah, okay. And he spent the latter years of his life living in New York. Okay. Um, but it's just a fascinating individual. Yeah. Um, and then the other person, because they just, again, I've had a relationship on and off, given what I've been saying earlier on, um, was Florence Nightingale. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because it's sort of, I'm just intrigued as to what she was really like. Mm. Because there's so much mythology around who she was yeah. and how and what she created and yeah. And so actually, it would be a three-way because it would be her and Mary Seacole. And so Mary Seacole was around at the same time as Florence Nightingale. Yeah. Um, but was Afro-Caribbean. Okay. And so got forgotten in the history books until relatively. Recently, recently. You know, until the last sort of 50, but had 60 it's, years. has much impact. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Uh, what's some of the best advice that you've ever received? <laughs> um, well, there's the bit about the what's in the head rather than yeah. between the ears rather yeah. than in the ears. Um, best advice. The <laughs> Um, no, it, it, I think I've already said it. It is just those amazing people that I've had the privilege of working with who said to me, you know, put the earrings back. The same with Barbara Young when I turned up for that first proper job in health outside yeah. of HRE names, sent me home to change because I yeah. turned up in their suit. Um, so just be you. Yeah, so did that. And I think and, and the person who taught that general management course in 1987 that I went on, I'm still friends with and um, and he retired long ago, but he always then used his advice to me as the worst advice, <laughs> which was the same thing. Yeah. You won't get anywhere if you don't take those earrings out yeah. and grow up. <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> um, what's one habit that holds you back the most? Um, I think it is now probably... Because, again, what I was saying earlier about being the professional extrovert and the, yeah. the introvert, I, I know that now I've got less tolerance for some of the um, additional non-work stuff. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm not – don't like going to social events just mm. for the sake of you're in this set and you get invited along. Yeah. 
to be part of that. Yeah. So I think that that's... To and, saying no is probably... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm getting better at saying no, yeah. but equally I realise that for Minda and the presence of Minda, mm. some of that is still important. Absolutely, yeah. What's one of your biggest pet peeves? <laughs> oh, well... <laughs> Just, um, <laughs> just well, no, okay. So, and I, I understand the importance of this, um, but the if if I could, it is a pet peeve because it, it really annoys me every day. Um, but it is a big social issue, mm-hmm. uh, and it's private education. Okay. I if I was dictator for the day, I would abolish all private education. I think that we're setting ourselves up to fail as a community and a society because we put kids on separate paths from very early on Mm. um, and then it creates divisions. Mm. Um, So I am anti-private education. Okay. Uh, My kids go to all private schools. Well, (laughs) and I know and it's sort of... But but you're right. It's part of my decision-making is that they will hang... I went to a private school and the people in which I connected with... Uh, are still in my life today and flourish they're flourishing in their careers and um and i think it's more the network in which mm. i am paying for more so than the schooling in, in itself so, uh, absolutely and that's exactly and, what yeah, you're and saying that's, and that's yeah. right and i think that's it just then means that you know the the um state schools thus get diminished because they don't have the diversity of the of the population mm. They don't have all those groups reflected necessarily within them. So yeah, I've never really thought about it like that. So that's my pet peeve. Mm. Um, and no. then you know when because then because when you because from that then flows you know, like all of the unnecessary transport that happens every day that mm. clogs up our city. <coughs> yeah. Because of people getting kids to schools on other sides of the city to yeah. where they live and. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it adds a lot of. Stuff. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. If you could pay someone to do one of your chores, what chore would it be? Um, I honestly don't have an answer to that. I don't think because because part of how I relax is doing some of the usual stuff. I mean, the person, the thing I do get, I do pay somebody else to do is to wash and iron my shirts. Oh, really? <laughs> See, but any other... Wash and iron? So you take them, you just take them and drop them off somewhere? Yeah, right? I t- yeah, yeah, yeah. Take yeah. them, drop them off and then go back a week later. Um, Pick them up. I don't possess an iron in our So you've got enough for two weeks in your wardrobe? At least, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's the, that's the thing which I would... Whereas cutting the grass, I love painting. Yeah. It is because it's just so different. And it's brain deading. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like you, you just, like, I can just do it with earpods in and, and listen to podcasts or whatever. Yeah. I'm very happy doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Crime podcasts as well. No, 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 no. I li- still a lot of BBC Radio Four um, programs that yeah. I grew up with. Okay. I still um, there's a long run, the longest running soap opera in the world. I think is called The Archers. Oh, yeah. Which is on radio and started between the world wars. Oh, wow. And it's in a farming community. And originally it was about educational around farming and yeah. the importance of food production, particularly during the Second World War. Um, and it's 15 minutes every day 
an omnibus edition on a Sunday for an hour and a half or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I listen to that religiously. Yeah, wow. And I have done for the last 40 years. There you <laughs> go. Very good. Um, what's, one, what's the first thing you would do if you become invisible? <laughs> bit, work, out, yeah. work out a way of doing away with private education. <laughs> yeah, okay, very good. <laughs> what's the most useless talent that you have? Oh, God. What useless talent do I have? Um, oh, I th- well, it's not. It's, I do think I've got a. I've got a particular talent for baking, which is not. Well, that's useful. That's not that's useful because that's, that's one of my things. All, all yeah. my team get a birthday cake on that I've made on their birthdays. Um, what's my most useful? I don't You're good at everything. No, no, everything. I'm not good at no. I can tell you one thing that I'm not good at, certainly. Uh, and you wouldn't want me for anything involving throwing a ball. Oh really? Sports I have no, not, not your thing. I have no, I have no I mean I, I love soccer. Yeah. I watch a lot of soccer. Could never play soccer. Yeah. Have no you know but I can't throw a ball. <laughs> I can't play tennis because I just so yeah, so two so, left feet. Well, it's, yeah. so my so the sport the only sport I do is running. Yeah, okay. I run nearly every day, but yeah, I great. just but I can't do anything which involves a ball. It just doesn't work for me. Mm, beautiful, um, and commonly known as the dad joke, right? <laughs> What's your best shit joke? <laughs> Again, I'm not a great joke teller. Um, the only joke in my repertoire um, is. It goes back to when I was a five-year-old, yeah. which is what did the Martian say to the petrol pump? What did the Martian say to the petrol pump? Get that finger out of your ear while I'm talking to you. <laughs> that's, that's horrible. <laughs> and it's supposed to be. Well, beautiful. Thank you so much today for your time, uh, David. It's been it's been a great, great and amazing chat. You've had um, – uh, a, a pretty uh, eventful journey. I think one thing that comes to my mind is one of the core values here at Synergy IQ, which is grit. You, you know, you've um, you've set your sight on what you want to do and what you want to achieve, and, and and connected yourself to the purpose throughout your career, which is um, and kudos to you and all that you've achieved. Um, thank you for the work that you've done here in South Australia. I know that you're uh, going to continue uh, doing some more great things over the next coming years, and looking forward to seeing the strategy come out um, for your plans with with Minda and then what you plan on doing after that. I think we're all going to be watching in anticipation. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And that's it from us, everyone. Take care and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care guys, all the best.